Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, the federal fiscal update yesterday. We'll get a walkthrough with Trevor Toom. Diesel inventories remain really low in the United States, and that's keeping the price stubbornly high. And Alberta's agri-food industry is huge and has the potential to get even bigger and meet a number of the challenges we keep talking about. We got a fiscal update yesterday, a fall economic statement it was billed as. Not a budget, um, just an update. And I guess the headline for a lot of us, certainly for me, was the fact that we're talking about a budgetary surplus for the first time. And now it's down the road a ways. We're not talking about this year. It's on the horizon. But this is the first time since the Liberals were elected back in 2015 that they've actually talked about introducing a budget that's not only balanced, but in the black. So kind of interesting. How did we get there? What's going on? To help us understand where we are economically and where we might be going, we're going to chat with Trevor Toom, who is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Trevor, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so let's do the broad strokes here. Uh, I think that headline leapt out at a lot of people and was reported a lot in the media yesterday. For the first time in a long time, the forecast of a potential balanced budget down the road. That's right. So these updates normally include more than just the current fiscal year. This one projects out six years. And when you look out to 2027, 28, they are projecting a budget balance of a surplus of about $4.5 billion. Now, that is six years from now, and a lot can happen in six months, let alone six years. So we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, this this is a first. It's consistent with a lot of other projections and really does reflect the broad improvement in government finances that we've seen this year. Yeah, that would sort of be a continuing path, right? Because we're talking about in the short term, actually seeing the deficit that was projected has shrunk quite a bit. That's right. When the budget came out earlier this year, they were anticipating the deficit would be just shy of $53 billion, fairly, fairly large, but that has shrunk quite a bit in this update to about 36 billion. And so a lot of that is because of improvements in the overall economy, but interestingly high oil prices and inflation generally is actually a net positive for uh, the government's yeah. budget, adding about $30 billion to, uh, to their balance overall. Yeah, so let's take a look at the two sides of the ledger there. And, and like you say, the inflation causes a lot of problems to a lot of people, but for a government, it typically means increased tax revenue, right? It does. So think about the GST. This is a simple thing uh, to visualize. It's 5% on the value of the goods and services that we buy. So when prices go up, your GST payments go up too, and that's adding maybe $2 billion to the federal government this year. And oil prices being so high, that has meant that corporate profits for oil and gas uh, firms, uh, other mining firms and petroleum products, their profits are up significantly. And the federal government, through its corporate income tax, gets about 15 cents for each additional dollar in profits 
uh, that they earn, and corporate income tax revenues alone are up significantly this year. They're projecting that corporate income taxes will be about $23 billion higher than they previously anticipated, really putting us at a level uh, that we haven't seen since the late 1960s when the corporate income tax rate was significantly higher than it is today. So that's, that's the big change for me. Okay, so we're seeing massive revenue increases based on, uh, you know, just where we are in terms of the cost of living. But what about the other side, the, the, the spending side? We know there's been a lot of calls from a lot of people to try and curb spending. Is any of that happening mm-hmm. there? Well, they have increased spending in a couple targeted areas. So first I'll note that there's sometimes unavoidable developments that occur that lead government spending to rise. And I'm thinking of Hurricane Fiona in particular. This has led to uh, disaster spending uh, to increase uh, quite a bit uh, in in this budget in support of the provinces that were were hard hit there. But then there are also uh, decisions that were taken to provide some targeted support for lower income individuals who are particularly strained from rising prices. We're going to have the GST credit mm-hmm. uh, doubling for six months. That's two and a half billion. There's going to be some support to lower income renters. That's about one point uh, two billion. And we also saw that the dental benefit, this uh, this program that's stemming from the agreement between the Liberal and NDP, that's now working its way into the financial numbers here. And that's adding over the next couple of years about nine hundred. Uh, million dollars. So there is some increases in spending, but relative to the revenue gains, they're a little bit smaller, and that's why the deficit has shrunk. Another thing you were uh, talking about on Twitter yesterday that I found really interesting when we talk about spending is sort of spending versus GDP. And the graph that you put on Twitter shows that we got way out of whack during COVID, and I think everybody understands that. But we're Mm -hmm. sort of returning back into what I guess you could call a more typical range. Would that be fair? I think that would be fair. So certainly during COVID, the total amount of government spending rose and the economy shrunk. And so when you look at spending as a share of economic activity, it, it jumped up quite a bit. And, you know, that's true all around the world. Yeah. And it's come down a lot. And, and it looks like once we get out to that 2027 fiscal year, then the government's anticipating that federal spending here in Canada is going to be a little under 15% uh, of GDP. And so that's getting us back down, not uh, at pre-COVID levels, but closer to them. So there has been this kind of ratcheting up a little bit in the overall size of uh, federal program spending. Some of that, I think, is well known. So the uh, carbon tax and rebate, for example, that's about half a point in terms of overall GDP that year. Um, But yeah, we're consistently seeing reductions in the overall size of government over the next couple of years. So for those concerned about fiscal policy adding to inflationary pressures, this is gradually subtracting um, that. Bringing it back into a a more manageable range. She did, however, say yesterday, and I guess there's some uncertainty, and that's always a bit of an issue, but she did say ultimately inflation is going to chart our course here in terms of where we go. We know there's talk of a recession. How much of this could be completely knocked off the rails still at this point? So that's an important question. There is a lot of uncertainty right now. Now, the government is not projecting its baseline forecast that we will enter a recession, but they are projecting that the pace of economic growth is going to slow dramatically. Next year, they anticipate Canada's economy will increase by only point. 7%, which is way below the over 3% that they previously thought. So that's not a recession, but it is a, a slowdown in growth. Uh, but you're right to note that if inflation 
persists and interest rates need to rise much more here and around the world, then that could turn us into a contracting economy through 2023. And that really does change the financial picture of the government a lot. But to to their credit, they include in this uh, fall update a scenario that looks at how things might pan out if there is a modest recession next year. Now, the deficit would grow, uh, but even in that scenario, it would remain below what we previously thought it would be. So I think Canada overall, in in terms of its finances, is in fairly good shape. Um, Last one, and then I'll let you go. It seems like they stole a page from uh, some of Biden's inflationary uh, activity in terms of Putting a, trying to encourage investment among companies that are reaping uh, some really massive profits like we talked about, specifically oil and gas, and trying to say, hey, don't just be buying back shares. Try and reinvest. What did they do there? So they have introduced, like the United States recently did, uh, a tax on share buybacks. And this is one of the ways that companies can return cash to shareholders. So dividends are are one big way, of course, that corporations distribute funds to shareholders. Another way is to just literally buy back their own shares. And this makes the price of those shares rise, which increases their value to shareholders. And so what they've introduced here is a proposal for a 2% tax on share buybacks. Not a lot of details in this update. We have to wait till the budget next year. That's not slated to start until January of 2024. Uh, But this is an interesting proposal. The intent is, of course, to raise some revenues, but also to nudge uh, corporations to, rather than distribute cash, invest it in operations. And I guess um, it's not going to start for some time. We'll have to wait to see what the ultimate effect is. All right. Uh, Trevor, as always, great insight. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Actually, it's been a long time coming. We've talked so much about gas prices here on the show because, uh, you know, they've got out of control and they're still very high. But um, even higher and not uh, seeing any relief at all is the price of diesel. Right now, your average Canadian price for a liter of diesel, this is the average, is $2.18 a liter. Um, one year ago, it was a dollar forty-three. So it's a huge increase. It's very, very high, um, and uh, it has a lot to do with inventories, I think. But let's get an expert on to to walk us through what's happened. And we're going to chat with chat with Dan McTague once again, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, good to be here. Good morning, uh, Shane. So, from my understanding here, a lot of this is wrapped up in U.S. inventories of diesel. Is that the overriding factor here? It is, uh, but what happens in the United States has a direct relationship uh, to the price that we pay here in Canada. Uh, you know, and there are three markets. You and I have talked about this before that affect uh, all of Canada's prices: uh, the New York, Chicago, and uh, uh, Pacific Northwest markets out of Oregon. And so, those three uh, reflect the supply and demand fundamentals in the United States, and they in turn. Uh, you know, in, in effect, the price that we pay for all of our fuels. And by the way, it's, I think it's pretty true for almost all commodities, regardless yeah. of where you are. The U.S. market is important. So what's going on with the U.S. inventories? I, I, I read they were down there at their lowest level since 2008. That's a long time. What's going on? Yeah, well, we're looking at a, uh, a long, <laughs> a story that has been long coming. Disinvestment. Uh, pipeline. Also, 
Hang on, hang on. Dan, you're breaking up a little. I'm going to throw you up on hold and see if see if Sarah can't get that line worked out. We lost Dan for a second there. I, I want to stick with this, though. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Canadian inventory of or, you know, supplies of diesel, fairly stable, haven't changed all that much. However, for some reason, um, when we take a look at the United States, their levels of diesel inventories are the lowest they have been um, since 2008. Let's see if we got Dan, uh, see if we got that line cleared up. Dan, sorry, you were breaking up for a bit there. Yeah, apologies. Well, that's, uh, I guess I won't be using Fido anymore. Listen, uh, <laughs> there's a plug. Uh, yeah, 20% below the past five year average. And the problem is very acute on the U.S. East and Canadian East coasts. Okay. That's where we use a lot of other fuels, not just diesel, but home heating fuel, fuel, uh, furnace oil is still used very common in places like that in and around Boston. And so, uh, you know, when you've got diesel used for jet fuel, diesel used for uh, stove oil, furnace oil, and uh, even urea used for fertilizer, you can see where uh, this is a fuel that gets no respect and unfortunately is a very short supply. Um, and, you know, the thing about it is diesel is, it, that affects all of us, right? I mean, the price of gasoline is the price of gasoline, but the price of diesel, even if you, even if you don't drive, it's going to cost you more when you go to the grocery, when you go anywhere because of trucking, right? Because of trucking, uh, because it's uh, rail, uh, you know, it's used for farmers to pull it out of the fields. It's uh, it's part of the processing, as I mentioned, urea for even uh, things like, for instance, uh, fertilizer. But here's the thing. The U.S. and to a lesser extent Canada has lost about 20 refineries in the past three or four years. So what? Think about that. They're not coming back. These are refineries that have closed down, are about to close down. And the reasons for that are various. Obviously, COVID didn't help. But there's no money in it. You say, well, they're making record profits, but they're being told do not reinvest in, in refineries. And by the way, who's going to reinvest in a refinery when you're being told by governments in the United States and in Canada that in 10 years there'll be no more internal combustion engines? By the way, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. But aside, no one is going to take the risk of committing billions of dollars to upgrade some of these refineries or reopen them when you know full well the governments are determined to kill them. No, yeah, and we've heard that criticism before. It makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're running the business, you got to be aware of of what's on the horizon. Where does, you know, it's a global commodity, as you said. Where yeah. does the whole situation overseas fit into this in terms of Russia, Ukraine? We know that's a big energy factor. Yeah, it does. They're using diesel as an alternative to natural gas. They know they can no longer get. But, uh, Shay, here's the big kicker. And, by the way, diesel goes up $0.10 cents a litre wholesale. I tweeted that this morning. I think I got two people that took interest in all of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and B.C., but that was like about an hour ago. Uh, here's the thing. Weather is going to start to get really cold. It's already started where you are, but uh, in places where I am, I'm looking at the window here today, enjoying 22, 23-degree weather. That's unusual for the beginning of November. When temperatures begin to drop and the people out here turn up their thermostats, more than just what happens in Europe, you're going to see a, a significant run on diesel such that we're going to see, I would say from the U.S. Midwest all the way back to the Atlantic coast and from probably Quebec into the Maritimes rationing uh, because the prices, if you think there's, there's something now, you mentioned 218, uh, it's about 222 here in Ontario. Uh, it's about 245, 260 in the, in the Maritimes. That's going to $3 a litre. It's going to cripple what? a lot of people. And more importantly, it's going to lead to uh, significant serious shortages and drive up the cost of propane, drive up the cost of natural gas, which are alternatives. $3 is what you're a looking at. In Eastern Canada, yeah. This winter. Uh, is there any relief in sight? Like you say, if you're talking about refineries coming offline, is there any way that this gets better, Dan? The crude 
to rack spreads uh, for diesel right now is uh, about a buck a liter. Uh, it means that oil will start to go up in price, which in turn will push prices. Now, I don't see this getting better. Uh, until the war on refineries and on fossil fuels ends, and it's not going to, at least in Canada, from the uh, from what we're hearing from our prime minister and his uh, partner in crime, <laughs> the NDP, they want to go full. Uh, they want to go full bore on uh, more climate policies, which are going to have the effect of driving up prices. We also have, of course, as you know, the clean fuel standard coming on July uh, 2023. Before that, an increase in the carbon taxes. These guys are not letting off their, their foot on the accelerator, and uh, that means that uh, we're headed for a collision. Uh, an inflationary one in which uh, affordability is undermined and which uh, a lot of people are going to have to choose between, and you've heard it before, it's trite, but it's true, between heating and uh, and eating. Well, yeah, and we've definitely seen massive surges at food banks and everything. It's already happening, Dan. Uh, yes, just before I let you get out of here, what about the price of gas? It's come down. We've seen some relief there. What are you anticipating for the next, you know, little yep. while when it comes to uh, heading to the gas station? Diesel will be up about 30 to 40 cents a liter. Guys, we get it much colder, and I think half of that will be gasoline. The refineries make both. They'll try to emphasize diesel, but it'll bring gasoline for the for the ride. So, the buck sixty three you're seeing in uh, Calgary, the buck fifty nine you're seeing in Edmonton, add another twenty to thirty cents uh, as we head towards uh, uh, this uh, very cold weather period. So we could see prices move much closer to a dollar eighty, even with uh, or without the uh, provincial government's help on uh, gas taxes. All right. Uh, not a lot of good news today. <laughs> I don't think I was Never expecting is, it. Never is. <laughs> I wish I was doing something else. Okay. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate your time. We're going to have a conversation here. I think it's pretty interesting, actually. We talk a lot about agriculture. We just did the crop update earlier this week, now that it's over and done. Pretty good year. Very good year. Uh, we've also had a lot of conversations about, you know, proposed fertilizer reductions and all the rest of this stuff and the consultations surrounding that and where we might go with that. And we also know that there's big issues facing us globally when it comes to food supply with what's going on in Ukraine and, and all those sorts of conversations. It's a, I mean, if you think about it, it is a massive, massive sector of the economy. It's a huge industry and it affects all of us, right? And there's a group of people that are in school right now studying how to make things even better. It's going to be a fun conversation. We're going to chat with Stan Blade, who is Dean of the Faculty of Agricultural Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Alberta. Stan, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Good morning, Shay. I really look forward to the conversation. So we're going to be talking about uh, the agri-food industry. First of all, let's define, what do we do when we say agri-food, what does that include? I guess we would, uh, we split it into two main areas. It's those farm gate receipts. So uh, the people that are selling the cattle and the canola and the wheat uh, uh, that are putting the money in their pocket, uh, that would be one side of it. And, you know, depending on the year, that's usually somewhere between 10, 12, 14 billion dollars. Uh, and then the other side is on the value added processing piece. So uh, whether it's beverages or, or the great food products that we produce in Alberta, usually that's another 10, 12, 14 billion. So, uh, you know, uh, Alberta is this uh, really interesting powerhouse, but that's how I would split out uh, sort of the work that goes on within the agriculture and food sector. And it's a massive, massive industry, agri-food, when we talk about it. It really is. I mean, how big is it in Canada in terms of people and money? Well, uh, from a from an export standpoint, I think last year Canada topped out at uh, just around $65 billion wow. of, of agri-food exports. Um, 
the uh, Canadian Agri Poop Policy uh, Institute did some work. Uh, this would be two or three years ago, uh, but they were talking about the fact that one in eight Canadians have some engagement uh, with the uh, with the uh, ag and food industry. Uh, so, yeah, it's the one that maybe that was one of the reasons why uh, uh, you know I, I like to get involved in these kinds of conversations because a lot of your listeners, I know a lot of them out in rural areas, but a lot of people that are maybe one, two, three generations removed from the farm and. Uh, you know, I think we we celebrate our, our legacy uh, uh, activities in, in food and agriculture, but uh, people have to understand that this is really a 21st century uh, industry, and Alberta has a great opportunity to take advantage of that. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that. I mean, you say that you're focused on getting students um, to be tuned into what the challenges and the opportunities are that are facing agri-food, and of course those two go hand in hand. So uh, these are the people that you're, you're, you're guiding and will be guiding us through this <laughs> such an important sector in the future. So, you know, when we take a look at what are the challenges that you tell them about that you need to overcome? That's what we're here to do is overcome challenges. What are the challenges you see? Well, and, you know, this is writ large. I, I appreciate way, the way that you asked the question with respect to our own students. And uh, let me say quickly as the dean, they are extraordinary. Um, but it's not just students that are facing this, right? I mean, it's all of us as yeah. citizens. And I guess I'm making the case, particularly in Alberta, but... Um, you know, if I, to, to answer your question, you know, what are we looking for? People are looking for, of course, food security. We've seen the issues, and I know that you've talked about this on your program, Shay, uh, you know, with food prices and where they're going these days, that we're going to be able to do this in a sustainable manner. And, you know, Alberta uh, producers have just been extraordinary when you talk to people that have been on the land for four, five, six generations uh, you know, these are the people that knew about sustainability before sustainability was a thing. Um, and then, of course, just thinking about where Alberta fits into the, the broader economic uh, uh, scheme of things when it comes to the rest of the world. You know, that uh, uh, we export sometimes 10, 12, again, somewhere in that range, 10, 12 billion uh, dollars of products to the rest of the world. Um, I think they buy our products. I don't think. I know they buy them because of the quality, because of the value that they see uh, in in Alberta's agricultural production. And I guess that's the beauty when uh, I do talk to our students. It's really to show that there's this complex system that they are uh, having an opportunity to move into something that is going to affect every piece of what the society works on these days, not only the economic value, but uh, the sustainability piece, of course, the, even the equity of having uh, uh, people having access to food, because we know that we have challenges with that, even here in the province of Alberta. Yeah. Um, so it really it, it captures the attention of uh, of students. And I would just say one last thing. Most of our students now that work that come to us in the agri- agriculture and food programs are from urban environments. So we have to work even harder to give them experiences, to, to put them out uh, uh, on internships and, and, uh, and with producers and with uh, people in other parts of the industry uh, to bring uh, these, these great students along. You know, and we talk about challenges, and the other side of that, of course, as you know, is is the opportunity that it presents, right? And we know that there's uh, those opportunities are sort of what you're you're talking about. How do you how do you see Alberta being uniquely um, positioned to, to capitalize on the challenges and turn them into opportunity? Well, I think first of all, we have to have some sort of a vision about you know what that potential is. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people have. Uh, uh, you know, we, we know we have all these great assets. We have amazing people. We have remarkable infrastructure. Uh, we have a, a, a whole array of, uh, 
of uh, facilities that do research and innovation. But I think what Alberta has been missing is that coordinated approach. Uh, uh, you know, we have the good fortune of collaborating with people from across the world within our faculty. And when I see what's going on in the Netherlands, uh, in Israel, even in, in a place like Australia, uh, government, uh, academia, and research institutions, so that's faculties like ours, but of course, there are great egg colleges in the province of Alberta as well, uh, the private sector producers, if we actually would set a vision, and, you know, I've talked about um, doubling our exports, our, our, our agri-food exports to $25 billion in, by 2030, so in eight years, and then start working backwards, start to align the investments that the government of Alberta is making in, in post-secondaries, in research, uh, uh, all of the other things that are going on, you know, with Invest Alberta, our economic development groups. Right now, it seems like we have all the ingredients uh, we don't quite have the recipe to actually pull all that together. Good things are happening, but it's almost in spite of rather than because of a very thoughtful approach. What's the what's the barrier, do you think? What's, what's sort of uh, preventing everything from coming together? Interesting. You know, uh, uh, boy, uh, you know, I come from a farm background. I grew up uh, on a dairy farm just south of uh, Leduc, so... We never want to talk too much about the fact that there are some, you know, good things that are happening in the industry around price and other things. I think we don't really, we haven't been forced into um, thinking too much about yeah. this because, you know, we've been doing okay. Uh, as with most things, it's only when you're into a crisis that you start thinking about doing things differently. Uh, I guess the, the case that I'm making, and I know a lot of my colleagues, I'm sure many of them that are listening, are just starting to say, you know, Alberta is a jurisdiction in Canada. Canada is one of the few jurisdictions in the world that actually has an uh, export capacity in food. Um, what is it that, that would, we would have to do then to double our, our, our food exports? And to be clear, in a sustainable way, in a way that's still profitable to producers and everybody else uh, in the value chain. Um, but we have to kind of just bring all of that together in uh, uh, in a in a bit more of a uh, of an intentional vision uh, than I think we've had to do up until now because you know people have been doing okay. Uh, it's amazing what our industry is accomplishing in 2022, uh, but I think we're still uh, leaving some opportunity on the table. And like you say, crisis often uh, creates the the urgency, right? And we're sort of in that situation now. I think a lot of us starting to recognize that. So maybe you're right. Maybe this is sort of the, the push that you need and, and in your expertise and, and, and the students that you're training are going to be much needed in the future. And this is, you know, it's all going to work out. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is where we're going. And, you know, you asked earlier about some of those other issues. Um, uh, so I've, I've worked internationally for many years, and uh, I've told the story on a few occasions over the last little while. I still uh, am active in some international activities. Uh, I can do a Zoom call with people from across yeah. Africa with no trouble whatsoever. Uh, in one particular instance, I signed off of that call. I then signed on to a Zoom call with producers from across Western Canada, and it was lag, and people were dropping off, and everything was going on. You know, we need to be so much better with our digital infrastructure, with all of those things that are actually going to support uh, our producers, our food processors across the province uh, in ways that uh, uh, they have one hand tied behind their back often. Yeah, exactly. Really interesting conversation, Stan. We'll have to do this again. Love it. Uh, really uh, enjoy your program. Thanks very much, Shane. Thank you very much. That is Stan Blade, who is the Dean of the Faculty of Agricultural Life and Environmental Sciences, University of Alberta. And he's right. I mean, we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to do things. And it's good to hear that some of that work's already happening. 
kind of frustrating to hear that, you know, we're probably not taking full advantage of the opportunity that's available. But, you know, with the situation that we're in, the opportunity is only going to get bigger because it has to, because we, we know we're dealing with some challenges and with some struggles. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.